the Dish, the Medical Laboratory Professional Association of Ontario's monthly podcast series. I'm Danika Evering. Each month, we discuss issues currently impacting the medical laboratory profession with someone working in the field who shares their insights, perspectives, ideas, and hot takes. This season, we're focusing on an issue which impacts all of us here in Ontario, an impending medical laboratory staffing crisis. We're speaking with small laboratories in rural and remote areas, lab managers preparing for shifting workforces, MLTs and MLATs working on the ground, and many more stories from the front lines of the shortage. December's Dish is with Sarah James, and I'm the quality manager for a group of 10 hospitals in northeastern Ontario. Uh, We have three point-of-care testing-only labs, and then the other seven labs range in size from our smallest lab, who has one MLT and one part-time MLT, to our largest lab that has 20 lab staff. So as a quality manager, my duties are primarily to oversee and keep current our document management system, to look for trends in any non-conformances and to facilitate and guide investigations into those, to ensure compliance with the IQMH requirements, and to make sure that the senior management are aware of and engaged in our quality system. A lot of people are interested to know how I do this job because I actually live in Toronto. So I fly north once a month and then I stay in the north for a week and I don't just stay at the main hospital site. I actually try and visit the 10 different hospitals uh, sort of fairly throughout the year, um, but as required at each site. So sometimes hospitals need more sites than others. Uh, One of the things that I do, of course, is all their internal auditing. So I have to get to the hospitals to do that. I try and visit each hospital between two and three times a year. Like any large-scale issue, before you reach a true crisis point, there are usually several indications, felt in ways large and small in the work and lives of practitioners on the ground. We wanted to know, when had Sarah first become aware of the medical laboratory professional staffing shortage? What were those first indications that a shortage of laboratory staff was on the horizon? I mean, I think if you go way back, I sort of recognized that there was going to be a staffing shortage not long after I started practicing. Um, And it was a couple of years after I started practicing that they shut down the programs because there were too many MLTs, so they said. But I think almost right away, we recognized that although we were currently well-staffed in the future, retirement was going to be an issue because all of us working in the lab at the time were all of a similar age, right? So, Mm -hmm. and then I became a pathologist assistant and then I became sort of well aware of shortages for pathologist assistants. And that kind of linked in because at the time, most pathologist assistants were coming from on-job trained MLTs. So our shortages were maybe more lack to that there weren't extra staff around, not necessarily a shortage, but mm-hmm. I still was sort of aware of that. And then in the last three years, I mean, as soon as I became the quality manager and started working in the North, I realized that there were shortages in our lab. I started recognizing it right away. I mean, we were confronted with it from the get-go because we already were missing staff in multiple hospitals. Uh, We were changing the way we were doing things. It came up time and time again. Many who work within a medical lab only see one slice of the shortage, their hospital or lab's particular situation, and how the specifics play out in their location, framework, and lab structure. 
As a quality manager, Sarah has insight into the larger perspective. She visits many different labs and can notice trends or patterns and shortages across these sites. One trend I notice is that in short-staffed or even labs that are minimally staffed, there's no real opportunity for the staff to grow. So, you know, that's all they can do just to keep up with the daily work and after a full day and then covering call um, because some of them are closed in the, in the evenings or at night. They're exhausted. It's a lot of work. They're back and forth all the time doing lots of hours. So then things such as being involved in the quality system, so having an opportunity to do process improvement or be involved in uh, teams to work on corrective actions, maybe having a chance to do something new or even like being mentored or even mentoring if you're in that position, they just sort of seem to get left behind. And then I find that what happens with that is that sort of leads us down the road to more problems because when we're then looking for people to step up into leadership roles or to move into other areas, we can't really draw from our own group because they just haven't had a chance to get there. And then on top of that, when you think about it, these staff are working in labs where they're stressed. They see the stress of the senior leadership. They see burnout in the staff. So I don't think a lot of them often want to take on that position because, you know, they don't see how they can improve the situation. Right. It's just so um, much responsibility in that light. It, it really is. Right. And, and how do you fix it? So mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to be big solutions right now. And then another thing that's kind of concerning for us that we've noticed is a pattern is that the number of retirees who uh, return to the lab and, and work large amount of hours, some of them even almost up to full time, they don't really want to come back. It's not a case of them coming back for the money, but um, these are small communities. They've worked in the lab for a long time sometimes, and they have a lot of loyalty. So they see the lab is suffering if they don't do it. So, you know, they should be out there having fun. (laughs) They've worked hard in a long time, and yet they're still tied to the hospital because they can't let go. And one of the things that we, we noticed about that is that We also might have like an opening and it will be open for a long time. And then we'll finally recruit someone to that position. And almost the day we recruit them, someone retires because they were just basically waiting Mm. for that position to be filled before they realized that, well, okay, well, maybe now it's okay for me to leave. I'm not going to leave all my friends and my colleagues and like my community in the lurch. So, Right. Like even over a small rural town, you'd feel a certain responsibility for the patients who you know where you're your neighbors and your community. Absolutely. The person that says, you know, you're the best phlebotomist ever, like I can count on you, like you know the people. So if you're not there and then they're waiting to have their blood drawn, you kind of feel responsible for them. So, Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And actually, I think that's something that I see a lot in technologists. Like we have a real responsibility to the patient. So when people talk, they often talk about that. So. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so then we never catch up, right? We're always, as soon as we hire, we lose someone. So then we're in a position of being short a person again. So, yeah. Oh, other patterns and trends. One thing is that we're almost consistently having a conversation about who actually needs to be doing the work that's being done, you know, and that, I mean, that's the conversation about uh, nursing for point of care testing, uh, MLA versus MLT, you know, should we be thinking about going to point of care? So sort of being nimble on how we're approaching our work and what kind of work is happening in those labs. So sort of trying to bring that in all the time. And I mean, I, I don't think that used to be a conversation that you would have a lot, like those things would come up for different reasons, not because you're in a crunch, right? 
it would be more like perspective, not um, now we're just kind of reactive, I guess. Right. Those things um, would have been long-term planning before, where now they're just kind of, what can we do to save the situation? Right, right. Before it would have been maybe like a process improvement kind of project. Like you think, oh, we should really start thinking about this. Like, you know, it would be engagement for staff, or maybe we can offer these services or maybe it, whatever. But now we're just like, oh my gosh, we have to do something about this. Uh, maybe this is one of the things that we can do. So, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me as a quality manager, one of the things that I see, you know, um, I mean, I've become very focused on quality. I really like it. I've always liked it. But uh, that's one of the things that I also see that, you know, it's, it's just because staff are so busy doing the bench jobs. And it's not that we don't have quality. We do have quality in the lab. But I see a lot of times that it's the one thing that gets left behind is like having staff be able to participate in the quality system. And I mean, I just think it's so engaging for staff when they get to have an opportunity to be part of that. So that really speaks back to my whole thing about like, I just don't see that opportunity for growth. So, Right. Because people are in crisis mode. They don't have enough energy or even hours in the day to to get some of those training things done and really stabilize. Right. And I mean, I think, you know, I can't think of the reference, but there are some people that talk about like the most important things about a job. And I mean, I know that uh, one of them is thinking that you matter. And I can't remember the three, but one of them is definitely that you continue to learn, like you have an opportunity Mm. to continue to learn, like this engagement, job satisfaction, the engagement is based on the other things. So that that growth is important. Uh, one of the things that I just kind of wanted to talk about too, like a pattern that we see that's not so much like in our labs, but that affects the staffing shortage for us. So being in uh, rural communities, uh, we don't have an educational facility close to our hospitals. So they travel. So oftentimes we'll have people go to the college to do the MLT program. And, you know, we sort of think, oh, they'll come back to their hometown and that will be great. And we do have some of those people and that is great. But we also see that some of the new graduates, because there's a shortage across the province, as soon as they're graduated, they may get offered a position maybe where they did their clinical or where they've spent their time going to school. And then they take those jobs rather than returning to their hometown. So, and it's not like we're counting on them, but, you know, it's sort of always in your mind that like when they first go to school, a lot of them think they will come home. Right. So, and then they end up not doing that. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's such an interesting point because I think that's often posited as a solution that if we amp up training of people who have grown up in rural Ontario, they'll return home to the community that they already know. But that's an interesting addition to that conversation. Yes, yeah, it it is. It's something to think about for sure. Yeah. And then of course, like, I mean, all of these patterns and trends kind of feed into high stress levels for the staff that you see across the board and also uh, disengagement of the staff. And I think that can exacerbate because with the disengagement of the career and the high stress levels, then we see um, staff turning away from the MLT career, which of course just Mm-hmm. exacerbates the shortage so yeah right like just cutting it all together yeah and saying i'm gonna do something different it's just not worth it this larger context plays out in specific instances sarah shared with us a story about a lab which really exemplified the shortage illustrating the incredible impact that many are facing on the ground we have one lab that recently suffered a severe staffing shortage and at one point we were down to three technologists out of five so almost 50 percent which you know for a group of only five 
50% is huge, right? And mm-hmm. one of those staff was also overseeing point of care at another site. So they were having to go to that other site on several days a week. And in fact, one week, because someone had already had a booked appointment that they couldn't miss, um, we were down to only two staff. And they were running a lab that was uh, day and evening shifts at the time. So we had to actually cut back on our services and change the hours of operation to try and accommodate that. And even then, when we were doing that, we had staff working back-to-back shifts and also taking call. And you have to remember in a rural lab like that, that sometimes the staff member taking call may live far away from the hospital. So, or not far, but far enough away that when they're on call, they actually have to stay at the hospital because, you know, you have a minimum call back time that you have to be able mm-hmm. to make it back. So we literally had staff living in the hospital pretty much, wow. <laughs> so, you know, which is not a fun place to, to live really, right? So <laughs> you really hope the cafeteria is good in that case. <laughs> so, yeah. And then catching up is really hard too, because then because of the shortage, like our recruitment of new technologists became fraught with difficulties too, right? Like trying to find the right person, the right fits within a shortened time. And, and then of course, training and everything when it's short stuff, these things are all just more stress, more things to do. So we actually brought in and trained several new staff who left. Some of them even G4 probation was over and different reasons why they left, but absolutely impacted just by the stress of working in a short staff lab. And uh, I, I think we can even see that decision being made in some of our other labs too, which, you know, goes back to the fact of like uh, MLTs leaving the profession because of the, uh, the stress levels. It's really hard, like watching them go through that has been really hard, you know, and trying to support them and understanding what support you can give because you, you can't just jump in and do the work. <laughs> Looking down the road, if the situation remains as it has been, there are many potential concerns. Some of these we can predict and others we can't possibly anticipate. Sarah reflected on the future of lab work, point of care testing, and quality control if the shortages continue to develop as they have been. I don't even think it's down the road. I mean, I think that we're already having some of these conversations for some of our sites. I mean, I can think of at least two of our sites right now where we're starting to have these conversations. So to me, I I think the impact's going to be severe. I mean, I think uh, labs will be forced to close or perhaps shorten their test menus, like their hours of service, what they offer, maybe convert to point of care testing only. I see that staff aren't going to wish to be lifelong MLTs. So then we're going to see a lack of experienced staff because we're going to have high turnover where people aren't moving on. And I think with the complexity of testing for the lab that the labs do these days, that's going to be a big problem when you don't have people with experience. And um, I think the same as I said before, like staff aren't going to be interested in moving into leadership positions either. So I, I really see problems for for us with the, the shortages coming. So. Mm-hmm. And then concerns-wise, I mean, of course, the biggest one is patient safety. And, uh, you know, you don't want to always be touting patient safety this, patient safety that, but it it really is true. I mean, I think lab closures and shortened test menus are going to mean increased turnaround times. And then I think sometimes there's going to be that you're just not getting the tests that you need when you need them, right? I mean, if the tests aren't available at the hospital for the doctor at the time, I mean, they're going to have to send them out. They're not going to have the results that they need. How are they going to be able to make decisions? 
I see our patients being forced to travel longer distances to access lab services. And some of the distances between our hospitals are an hour and a half. So Mm -hmm. that's a long way to go. And like we talked about the winter and winter weather, right? So I mean, that can be add to that. I also think things like the point of care testing lab only, like it is a solution, but despite our efforts and even the use of remote technology now, where we can't oversee and regulate point of care programs the way we can monitor our lab's performance or even MLT's performance. And we are developing tools such as like we have operator ID and QC lockout, but they're, you know, they're not at the level that we would like to see them be for a lab. And uh, to me, all of these things are going to just speak to increased healthcare costs, which we know we can't afford as a province. And we're going to have longer hospital stays while people wait for test results. We're going to have increased transportation costs. Point of care can be costly. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. You know, like, I mean, it doesn't get bought in because it's cheaper. It gets bought in because it's a solution to a problem. But it, it's a costly endeavor for hospitals to undertake. That issue of transportation is a really interesting one. You're right, but in rural Ontario, when you don't have the access to services in your community, it becomes a real issue of accessing healthcare. Right, it really does. I mean, these hospitals, when you when you have community hospitals, it's much different, right? Like, I mean, they really are a part of the community. So mm-hmm. it's not a social gathering place. That's not the right way to put it. But I mean... The people in that community rely on the hospital. It's like we talked about before. They know the people that work there. So they see them in the stores. They see them wherever. And they see them at hockey games or (laughs) things like that. So, I mean, losing the, you won't be losing the hospital, but losing the lab is a large part of, you know, the patient being able to go there to get the test and everything like that. Mm -hmm. And rely on it too. Absolutely, to rely on that, yeah. The health human resource issue is immense, impacting all Ontarians. Its solutions involve many different stakeholders. We asked Sarah, what would one change be that would make the biggest difference in addressing the lab professional shortage crisis? I've attended some meetings and some talks about some of the differences that we can make, and I think there are a lot out there. But for me, I mean, I think that it's really a fundamental change for us. And realistically, I think as MLTs, we actually have to be very courageous because I think what we need to do is we really need to think about how the lab has changed in the last 20 years and how we need to adapt to that change, which I don't think we've done well, really. I mean, we've certainly risen to the challenge of the new complexities that are coming with automation and with the increased focus on QC, with going to the ISO 15189 and the IQMH requirements, but we've been slow to let go of some of the things that perhaps we need to let go of. So to me, that means really look at what and how testing is done and then sort of rethinking the appropriate staffing models. And I know that's scary for a lot of people. I mean, it's kind of an irony to me that on one hand, we're all talking about a staff shortage, but then on the other hand, people are nervous about losing their jobs. And I think Mm -hmm. that comes up. But And then once we've done that, I mean, everything's going to have to change downstream from that, right? So basically, almost like a new scope of practice. And then the colleges are going to have to redefine their education to uh, meet the new scope of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and is, do, you, but, do you see that as being on individual labs? Or is it kind of more of a united effort between many different stakeholders? I think that's a united effort between many different stakeholders. Yeah, I I really do. I mean... I think we really need to look at that as a group, not lab by lab. 
And I mean, I think some of us are kind of doing that a little bit lab by lab, because I mean, certainly the talk is out there about MLAs doing positions that MLTs have traditionally done. And that is happening. I mean, we talk about that and, and we actually have put that in place in several areas. But I mean, I think it needs to be bigger than just a lab by lab thing. Like it has to be a fundamental change for staffing models. Right. Staffing models and even workflow and operations. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It needs a overhaul. <laughs> yeah. Definitely a review. Maybe not an overhaul, but definitely a review. Thanks so much for listening to The Dish. This episode was produced and recorded in our office overlooking Hamilton on the Niagara Escarpment and in the Free Makerspace studio at the downtown branch of the Hamilton Public Library. It was edited by Lauren Hicks of New River Media. The Dish is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. If you have a story you would like to share, we want to hear it. You can contact us through our website at mlpao.org. We'll be back in January with more stories from the front lines of the shortage. 